The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 16. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 16. Title of my message for you this evening is Maintaining Joy and Peace in a Troubled World. Now, how many of you would, would say by a show of hands tonight, you could use a little more joy in your life? Okay, come on, I should see every hand. This is group participation here. How many would say, I need a little more peace as well? I'll take the joy, I'll take the peace. Amen. Every hand should be up, obviously, because we all lack peace to some extent, and we all need or want or desire more joy. And I think part of the problem is that while we can sometimes grab hold of joy and we can experience peace, it seems to be fleeting. And we experience those things in moments and and in flashes. And and we, we get little samples or tastes of peace or joy. But doesn't it almost feel oftentimes like this world is designed in such a way that it's constantly trying to rob our joy and, and, and shake our peace or destroy our peace. And so these things end up being fleeting and tenuous. We, can't, we, can, we can get them, but maintaining them, that's something that's altogether different. And that's why I'm so intrigued by what Jesus says here at the end of John 16. Because in the final half of this chapter, Jesus not only talks about where we can find joy and how we can experience peace, but he talks about how we can find a joy that nobody can take from us. Now, that's something altogether different. And he talks about a peace that can secure us and secure our hearts and steady our souls in the midst of the most trying times. So let's, let's go ahead and talk about each of those things. Let's start by talking about joy that can't be shaken. And we see that in verses 16 through 22. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me. Now at this, some of his disciples said to one another, what's he mean by saying in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then a little while, you'll see me because I'm going to the father. And they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus could be difficult to understand sometimes. And so Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you'll see me no more? And then after a little while you'll see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You'll grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child is pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And take note of this. And no one will take away your joy. I love that last phrase. No one is going to be able to take away the joy that I give you. And that's what we just identified as as the thing that we all need, we want, a joy that can't be taken away. And according to Jesus, the thing that was going to produce this joy in the hearts of his disciples was the knowledge that they would see him again in just a little while. Did you notice that phrase? I mean, it pops up over and over and over again in these verses 
in a little while. And it's kind of this, this theme or this phrase around which the entire conversation revolves. Jesus tells them, in a little while you won't see me, and then a little while later you're going to see me, and that's what's going to create the joy. So what was he talking about right there when he says, you won't see me in a little while? Well, he's talking about the cross. Think about it. Just minutes removed from this conversation, Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas. He's about to be arrested by the religious leaders. He's about to be handed over to the Romans where he'll endure kind of a mock trial. He'll be condemned to death. And then he's going to have nine-inch spikes driven through each of his wrists and his feet. He's going to have a crown of thorns hung on his head. And he's going to be crucified where he will hang for six hours on a cross. And then he's going to give up his spirit and he'll be taken down from the cross and he'll be laid in a cold, dark tomb. This is right on the horizon. It's right beyond what they could see. And this is what Jesus was referring to when he said, in a little while, you're not going to see me. And you're going to weep and mourn while the world rejoices. What was terrible news for the disciples was fantastic news for the religious leaders and Jesus' enemies, the enemies of the cross. They rejoiced, ah, this thorn in our side, this rabble-rousing rabbi from Nazareth has finally been taken out of the picture. And so the, the, the religious leaders rejoiced, and so did hell itself. Because Satan thought that in the moment when he crucified the, the Lord of glory, that he had won and he had defeated the light and he had taken down God. And, and at that same moment, the disciples were convinced that the story was over. And so they wept and they mourned. They were grief-stricken and heart-sick. I mean, you have to remember, we, we tend to view the experiences of the disciples through the lens of what we know happened and where this story goes. But when Jesus was sharing this with them, they had no concept or weren't even anticipating a resurrection. It was the last thing in their minds. Even on that third morning, when the women went to the tomb on that first Easter morning while it was still dark, remember what they carried with them? Embalming spices. They weren't going there to celebrate a resurrection. They were going there to mourn their loved lost Lord and to embalm him. But then they got the surprise of their lives, didn't they? When the angel came down from heaven and rolled away the stone and showed the women that he had risen from the dead and then sent them to get the disciples and they came running. And in that instant, their grief was transformed into inexpressible joy. Can we just dive into that for just a little bit? I mean, think about how differently that day turned out from how it began. It was a day that began with tears, but ended with joy, didn't it? It began with grief, but it ended in gladness. It began with a crucified Lord, but ended with a risen Savior. It began with darkness, but ended with light. It began with death, but ended with life, and their sorrow was turned to joy. I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 30, verse 5. Can we go ahead and read this together out loud? It says this, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Can we just let that be a word from the Lord to us tonight? The cross forever 
speaks this truth that God is able to take the very worst thing and out of it extract and from that very thing that you consider to be horrible and just awful, he can extract from it joy and bring you the greatest joy through the worst tragedy. Only God can do that. And the cross, once and for all, proves that God can bring good out of any tragedy. He can bring triumph through any tear. He can bring good out of any bad. That's what the cross speaks to all of us. Now, the analogy that Jesus uses to to drive home this point is, is this picture of a woman who's delivering a baby. He said, consider the transformation that she goes through in terms of her emotions. And I've, you know, never given birth, but I have been in the delivery room for all four of my children's births. And and so I can tell you, and you know, many of you women could tell us guys, but in that room, there's tremendous sorrow, there's tremendous pain, and you have the contractions and You know, I remember being in the doctor's office and they have the little graph where it shows you when your contractions are and how big they are. And I remember looking at that and being like, oh, honey, this is a big one. And she's looking at me with like daggers in her eyes like, I know it's a big one, you know. (laughs) But then the moment that baby is born, you forget all about the pain for the joy of holding this precious little gift in your arms. When you hold your child for the first time, ladies, it's like, oh, it was worth it. It was worth it a thousand times over so that I could hold this little joy. And that's exactly what happened in the hearts of the disciples on that first Easter morning. Listen, the greatest moment of sorrow was transformed into the greatest moment of joy. The worst thing that ever happened became the best thing that ever happened. And it produced within them a joy that couldn't be taken. This joy carried them and characterized them for the remainder of their lives, so that no matter what hardships and trials and tribulations they had to endure, they had a joy, an abiding joy, an overflowing joy, and nobody could take it from them. When they were, when they were beaten for preaching the gospel in Acts, it says they left rejoicing. Who rejoices after they're beaten? When they were persecuted, They praised the Lord. When they were thrown into prisons, they sang songs. When they were tortured, they prayed for the very people that were persecuting them. And when they were led to their deaths, the the history books tell us that their hearts were still filled with a joy inexpressible that couldn't be taken away. Where did this joy come from that carried them through the rest of their lives? And you can read about it in, in the books of the New Testament that they wrote. They had joy because they knew they were gonna see Jesus in just a little while. It's just a little while. We got to talk about that phrase, in a little while. Can I say something to you? The joy that you're experiencing in your heart right now, at any given moment, it will always be directly proportionate to your awareness of this truth, that it's just a little while longer, and then you're going to see Jesus. Amen. Someone, Someone praise the Lord with me. To the degree that you understand that truth, you will, like them, be able to experience an unshakable joy. Just a little while, in a little while, you're going to see him. 
Revelation chapter 22, verse 7 puts it like this. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. That's the promise of Jesus. I'm coming soon. Now, at this point, there's some tension, because if you're a thinking person, then you're probably thinking, I think Jesus has a different idea of what soon means than I do. Can I get a witness? It's kind of like that scene in The Princess Bride when the guy keeps using the word inconceivable and the other guy finally points out, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Jesus, when you say you're coming back soon, what does that mean? I mean, it's been more than 2,000 years since you left, so why is it taking so long? You know, and so we have this idea that it's taking forever. Well, it's funny, isn't it, how your perception of time changes with age? And experience. Like when I was a kid, I can remember, you know, having to wait a few days for something, or you would count down the days till Christmas, and it just seemed like each day dragged on for an eternity. Or I can remember sitting in class, staring at the clock, trying to will it with every fiber of my being, trying to will it to move so that the day would end and I could go play with my friends. And, and it just felt like time stood still. Sometimes it felt like the clock went backwards a few minutes. And moments seem to last for eons. But, but then you grow up, and, and it just seems like there's never enough time. I mean, now I'm thinking in terms of like, oh, wow, that's coming in like two years. OK, well, we better get ready. We hardly have enough time to plan and prepare for that. You know, you think in terms of decades and what you can accomplish over the course of a lifetime. And time, it just, it's elastic like that. Well, God has his own reckoning or understanding of time. I mean, have you ever noticed that when he shows up on time, it always feels like it's late to you? <laughs> you know? And so, too, when God says, I'm coming back soon, he has a different understanding of what soon means. In Peter's day, everyone was wondering why Jesus hadn't come back yet. So this is like the first century. And they're already confused by what Jesus said. He said he was coming back soon. So where is he? And this is what Peter wrote to the church in response to that question, what's taking God so long? And let's go ahead and read this together out loud. He said, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed but wants everyone to repent. That's 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9. So I love this. In God's economy of time, he says, well, a day's as a thousand years with the Lord. So God's not taking his time. From heaven's vantage point, God says, I've really only been gone, you know, a couple of days. I was just gone for the weekend. And guess what? I'm coming back tomorrow, <laughs> you know. And I do believe he's coming back soon. But the truth is, the reason he's waiting is because he wants more and more people to get saved. So God's long-suffering. He's not slack concerning his promise, but he's patiently waiting so that the gospel can be preached to every person and that every person might have a chance to respond. Now, at this point, again, some of us are thinking, well, that's great that God wants you know, all these people to get saved. But how's that supposed to help me right now as I'm suffering, as I'm grieving, as I'm facing difficulties and hardship? You know, 
Those of you who have suffered, you know that one second of suffering can feel like it just lasts for a lifetime. So yeah, sure, Jesus is going to come back eventually. But what about right now? How am I supposed to get through this? And, and, and if you're telling me, Matt, Pastor Daniel, that I can experience joy, how does that translate? What does that look like? Listen, I don't want to minimize what you're going through. I don't want to try to minimize the pain that you might be experiencing. But when you weigh what you're going through against the greater context and backdrop of eternity spent in the presence of the Lord, what's a lifetime? Even if you had to suffer, even if you had to struggle, even if you had to paint every day of your life over the course of 80 years, what is that in comparison to eternity? You see, right now it might seem like the pain you're feeling will never end, but the truth is it's just a little while until you see him face to face. Paul said it like this. He said, when I compare my present struggles with the eternal weight of glory, there's no comparison. It's like if you could have a cosmic scale and you put everything that you've been through on this side, all of the weight, all of the tragedy, all of the suffering, all of the loss, and then you put the eternal weight of glory on this side. It doesn't even begin to compare. There is a glory that is waiting for you. So you can rejoice in the suffering because you know that it's only going to last for a little while. You see, the Bible compares our entire lives to things like the grass that withers, the flowers that fade, and a vapor of smoke. Friends, before we know it, we're going to be in the presence of Jesus. And you know what the Bible says? On that day, he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. And it says there will be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, no more disease, no more remnants from the curse. And all of that stuff will become a distant memory, like when you wake up from a bad dream. And in that day, we'll wake up in the presence of Jesus. And so I want to use this as a way to encourage those of you who are in the midst of a trying time to know that it's just a little bit longer. We're going to see Jesus. Just hold on for a little bit longer. There's a joy that you can experience now because you're going to see him. And on that day, your grief, I promise you, will give way to a joy inexpressible that no one will be able to take from you. Can somebody please say amen? Amen. So he goes on in verse 23, he says, in that day, you'll no longer ask me anything. In other words, you won't need to pray anymore when you're in my presence because you'll already have everything you need. He says, very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've asked for until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. And that day, you'll ask in my name. I'm not saying that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. All right, so Jesus says, 
There's coming a day when you'll see me, and when you see me, your joy will be complete, and you won't have to ask for anything. But right here and right now, in this season, you have plenty of needs. And so Jesus says, just ask the Father. Because it is the Father's good pleasure to meet your needs and to give you whatever you ask in his name. Verse 23. Think of this incredible opportunity, this incredible privilege, this underutilized gift, this thing we call prayer. Prayer, you want to know what prayer is? Prayer is the tool that God has given to us to access heaven's resources to meet earth's needs. So God has all of these solutions, all of these answers, all of these keys, all of these breakthroughs at his disposal. And we have all of these needs and all of these closed doors down here. And God says, the way that you access my victory, the way that you open those doors of opportunity, the way that you tear down those walls, the way that you push back the darkness is by laying hold of heaven's resources. And the thing that binds the two together is this gift called prayer. Listen, God knows that you have needs, and he's just waiting to meet those needs. It's his joy to answer your requests. In fact, he says, just ask, and you'll receive so that your joy might be complete. You said you wanted more joy. Well, just start praying. God wants to answer your prayers, and when he does, it'll complete your joy. But notice how he says we're to pray in a specific way. He says that we're specifically to begin praying in his name. Now, this was new and radical and revolutionary. He says in verse 24, until now you have not asked for anything in my name, but I want you to start praying in my name. Again, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of those 12 or 11 guys that were standing around Jesus as he uttered these words for the first time. This would have been radical and revolutionary. I mean, for a Jew to approach God on the basis of any name other than God's name was a blasphemous thought. The name of God was so revered and so holy that they would never even speak it. In fact, when a religious Jew wanted to reference the name of God, they, they wouldn't say his name. What they would say is Hashem. You know what Hashem means? It literally means the name. And that's what they said to reference God. When the scribes who were responsible for copying the scriptures, whenever they would come to the, the name of God in the Bible, they would, they would take a bath, they would get a new pen and a new quill, or a new quill and new ink, and then they would just write the consonants of God's name. They wouldn't even write the vowels because it was considered too sacred, too holy to even write down. Do you know how many times God's name shows up in the Bible? That's a lot of baths. And that's why we, to this day, we don't even know how to correctly pronounce the name of God. And some say that it's Yahweh, and some say that it's Jehovah, but the Jews to this day are divided. And so there's even one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not misuse the name of the Lord. And yet here is Jesus asking his disciples to begin praying in my name, he says. Go to the Father 
through me, in other words. It was a direct claim to deity. But let's, let's dig into this. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Is that kind of like, I don't know, just taking a bow and wrapping it around a gift that's so beautifully wrapped already? It's just kind of the finishing touch on a well-crafted prayer? Or maybe is it like part of the magic formula that forces God to answer our requests? God's up in heaven going, oh, I didn't really want to answer that. But, you know, they did say in Jesus' name. So I guess you know, my arm's kind of twisted and here you go, you know. Or, or, you know, he's got like a genie in a bottle or something like that. And does it nullify a prayer if we forget to say in Jesus' name? It's like you end your prayer. It's like, oh, you're not going to get that. You didn't say in Jesus' name. No, no, no. It's none of those things. And God's not a genie in a bottle that we butter up by bringing up his son's name so we can just get whatever we want. And neither is it a magic formula. There's something going on here. And I want, to, I want to jot down, you to jot down a couple of thoughts with regards to this. Number one, to pray in Jesus' name is to acknowledge that our standing before God and our access to God is based solely on the finished work of Jesus. Now, that's a mouthful. And some of you are writing, so I'm going to say that again. To pray in Jesus' name is to acknowledge that our standing before God and our access to God is based solely on the finished work of Jesus. In other words, the thing that makes it possible for us to come before God in prayer, to access his throne, it's, it's his name. You see, we're righteous. We're declared righteous because of Jesus and what he did, amen. We're given access because of him. We're given this status as sons and daughters all because of Jesus. Hebrews chapter four puts it like this, and I'm gonna read two verses out of Hebrews four. Let's go ahead and read these together, verses 14 and 16. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So since we have a high priest who's gone before us, whose blood has atoned for our sins, he has opened the door, the veil and the temple has been rent so that now we have unfettered access to God's throne, to the very presence of God. And so he says, come with confidence, come with boldness, come with readiness to receive, come with regularity before the throne of mercy and great to help, grace to help in times of need. And our time of need is right now. And so we can come in his name. To come in his name is to recognize that you are the one who provides this access. But the other thing that it means, when we talk about asking in Jesus' name, the other thing that it means is you're asking for what Jesus would ask for. To pray in Jesus' name, in other words, is to submit to his will and to pray in line with his heart and his objectives. It's about submission. That preposition in is so significant. We pray in Jesus' name. Why? Because we are in Christ. We have been united with him in his death, 
in his burial and in his resurrection. And now even our prayers are offered in his name. So when you come before the Father, you're praying as though this were Jesus' request. It's a bit like this as a helpful analogy. Back in the olden days of the American West, you know, before we had credit cards and, and things like this, there would be these shopkeepers and they would maintain a ledger book that would record the activities of each of their customers and the amount of money that they owed and so forth. And, and the customer, or the owner of the shop rather, knew his customers so well and the work in which they were involved so that at times that person could send another individual, perhaps one of his employees or maybe one of his kids, and they would go down to the mercantile, they would go to the store and they would say, oh, I'm here for my dad, so and so, and I'm coming in his name. And he said, you can add it to his ledger. And so the shopkeeper would say, okay, and he would write that down and it would be added to the total of, of what was owed. Now there were instances where, let's say, someone came into the store and they said, oh, why? well, I'm going to get this and this, and I'll take a few of these, and I want to get all of this stuff. And, and it was out of line. It wasn't in character with what the person would typically buy. In that instance, the shopkeeper would say, well, I, I know, you know, Bob, or I know Farmer Brown, and there's no way he would want all of this stuff, and so I'm going to reject your request because you say you're coming in his name, but that's not really what's happening. Well, coming to God in Jesus' name is a bit like that. We're invited to come before the Father and receive what we need. But when we ask for things that are out of alignment with what Jesus would want, or contrary to the character of Christ, then we can't expect to receive those things. James talks about that in his epistle. This is James 4. He says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your own pleasures. So you have to make sure to, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in alignment. And, and how do you do that? You get to know his heart. You get to know his will when you spend time in his word. So when you pray the word of God, when you pray the promises of God, you are praying perfect prayers, prayers that God will respond to, prayers that God will answer in the affirmative each and every time. Every promise of God is a blank check that is just waiting to be cashed, and there are over 7,000 of them. And that same passage in James also talks about you have not because you ask not. And so I have often imagined this huge warehouse in heaven, kind of like an Amazon fulfillment center with all of these vans parked outside waiting to just dispatch all of these answers to prayer. But it's filled to the brim with all these answers that have yet to be sent because the request has yet to be made. You say, where does that land? How does that work? This mystery where unless I ask for it, it's not going to be given. And I mean, isn't God sovereign? And isn't he going to do what he's going to do, whether or not I pray for it? And the answer is, it seems to me, according to what James says, that there are certain things that God won't do unless his people pray. There's a divine mystery at work in this work called prayer. And so we need to pray. We just pray. 
And we pray the word, we pray the promises, and we pray in Jesus' name. We pray in alignment with his character. We pray on the basis of the finished work of the cross. We pray in confidence, knowing that we have access to the very throne of God because what Jesus has done for us. And when we do that, God gets to move and heaven is glorified. So he goes on in verse 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly without figures of speech. And now that we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. And Jesus responds, do you now believe? A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You'll leave me alone, yet I'm not alone. For my father is with me. He's predicting here and prophesying what's about to happen in the garden when the guards show up. And according to Jesus' word, all the disciples scatter. And Peter at one point pulls out his sword and cuts off the high priest's ear. And Jesus picks up the guy's ear and sticks it back on his head. That had to be a scene. And he allows them to arrest him, but all the disciples scatter. And then Jesus says, okay, look, you guys are going to bail on me, but I'm not alone. The father's with me. And then he says this. I've told you these things, like these things, everything that he's been saying since they left the upper room, so that in me, you might have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We've talked about a joy that can't be shaken and where that comes from. Now let's talk about a peace that can't be taken. Jesus says a couple things in verse 33 that I want to hone in on and draw your attention to. First, he says, and this is the hard part, he says, in this world, you can expect trouble. That's one of those promises that you don't see on T-shirts. It's not the promise that we put on coffee mugs and sell in Christian bookstores and that kind of thing. But that doesn't make it any less true. You know, there are a whole host of churches that you can go to and a bunch of preachers that you can listen to that will falsely claim that when you come to Jesus, all your problems are going to suddenly go away. Your bills are going to get paid. Your dog that ran away is going to come home. Your teeth are going to get whiter and, you know, all the rest. And I, by, for the record, I hope all those things happen. <laughs> I pray they do happen for you. But that's not what we're to expect. And none of it's guaranteed. Part of living in a fallen, broken world like the one we live in means that we're going to have to experience hardship. You remember that story that Jesus told at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, there in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And, and he tells this story at the end about these two men who built their homes. One built their house on the sand, and the other built his house on the rock. And then the storms came, and the wind blew, and the rain fell. And at the end of the day, only the house that was built on the rock remained. And the house built on the sand was, was blown away. And he made that, told that story to make the following point, that only those who build their house that is on the rock of Jesus Christ, on the sure foundation of God and his eternal word, only that life will be able to Tour. But there is this subplot in the story that the storm hit both homes. In other words, following Jesus, living a godly life doesn't insulate you from the trials and tragedies of, or hardships of this world. Peter said it like this. He said, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that comes to test your faith. Paul said that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
And Jesus himself, for his part, said that if they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. So in other words, anyone who claims that believing in Jesus guarantees things like financial prosperity or physical health or perfect relationships, they're just not clued into what the Bible says. They haven't read their Bible. But that doesn't mean we're without hope. Because although we can anticipate and even expect troubling things to happen in this world, he encourages us to take heart. Why? Because he says, in me, you can have peace. He has promised us his peace. Now, we did a whole study on this not too long ago when we differentiated between the peace of this world and the peace of God. And so I'll only touch on it here, but suffice it to say, the peace that he offers is a peace that is rooted in him. He is our peace. And that's so key to this whole thing. You see, true peace isn't something that we obtain. It's not something that we stumble into, and it's not something that comes as a a result of orchestrating our, our circumstances or our surroundings so that they are in our favor. It's not about the absence of problems, but rather it's about the presence of Jesus. You see, if your peace is predicated on things like, I don't know, your finances or your circumstances or your relationships or your physical health, then all you'll ever know of peace is is something that's slippery, like a wet bar of soap and tenuous and flimsy. But when you build your peace on him, then you can have peace, even when everything is falling apart all around you. And as an example of this, Jesus lived this out. He didn't just preach this, but he practiced it. And I'm so glad that he did. And Jesus, he doesn't just tell us what to do, but he demonstrates it through his life. And and the perfect example of this principle in Jesus' life is that instance in the Gospels where he gets into a boat with his disciples and they set sail for the other side of the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And as so often was the case, this storm came out of nowhere. And it threatened to capsize the boat. And again, the wind is blowing. And the waves are crashing. And the rain is falling. And Jesus is sawing logs in the front of the boat. I wonder just for effect if he snored, you know. But there's Jesus at perfect peace in the midst of a storm that was threatening the lives of the disciples. And finally, they're looking at one another, and they're like, is somebody going to wake him up? And finally, I forget who it was, but one of the disciples wakes Jesus up, and they said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus rebukes the wind, and he calms the storm, and he reminds them in that moment that when you're with him, you can be at peace because he is the peace in every storm. He is the eye of the storm. He is the one that brings you through the, the storm. And even when there's craziness all around you, if he's given you his word that you're getting to the other side, then nothing can thwart that. Jesus' peace during the storm is a poignant picture of what God wants for every single one of us. You see, the troubles may or may not subside, but our peace can remain because he is our peace. It's not tied to something. Our peace is locked up in someone. And that peace, friends, is possible because he has overcome the world. Amen. He has overcome the world. 
Now, the word overcome there could be translated conquered. He conquered the world. He defeated it. Now, what's curious is that Jesus uses a past tense verb here to describe something that wouldn't happen for another couple of days. He says, I have overcome the world, past tense. But at this moment, he hasn't even been arrested yet. He hasn't been tried. He hasn't been condemned. He hasn't been beaten and flogged. He hasn't been pinned to the tree. He hasn't been buried in the tomb. And he certainly hasn't risen from the dead. And yet he speaks here as though it were already a foregone conclusion. How could he do that? Because in his eyes and in heaven's estimation, it was. Even though he hadn't gone to the cross yet, he could speak as though it had already happened and he'd already conquered the grave because he knew he would. Peter picked up on this. In that sermon that he delivered on the day of Pentecost, there in Acts chapter 2, I think this is in your notes as well. Let's go ahead and read it out loud together. It says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Let me tell you something. Death didn't stand a chance. Neither did the devil. Neither did the grave. The fight was already over before it even began. Before the first bell rang in the first round, Jesus had already delivered a knockout blow. He is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the world were even laid. And even in the annals of history past, God knew he would send his son to be the sacrifice, to pay the ultimate price but how he would raise him from the dead. And it wasn't possible that death could ever win. And let me tell you this as well. Because of that, as his followers, we too can face any trial, anything this world throws at us, and we can handle it with peace in our hearts. Why? Because he's for us and he's with us. He is our peace. Listen, friends, God wants you to experience a joy that the world can't shake and the world can't take. And that joy comes from this settled knowledge or understanding that I'm here for a little while, but I'm going to be in heaven forever. And the things that are weighing me down presently ultimately don't even register as a blip on my radar because I'm going to be in his presence. He's going to wipe away every tear. I'm going to join the hosts of heaven and the angels, and I'm going to cast my crown at his feet, and I'm going to sing together, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb of God. We can carry that joy now because we know what's coming. It's like if somebody said, hey, I'm going to guarantee you a million dollars, but it might get tough today. You might have a rough day. But tomorrow, you're going to be a millionaire. And, and you're going to make it. You're going to get there. You'll, you, you would endure those trials with a different perspective, knowing that tomorrow you're going to wake up a millionaire. Listen, we're not just going to be millionaires. A gazillionaire times a billion, we're going to be in the presence of Jesus. So we can carry that joy with us just a little while longer. And we can have peace in the midst of any storm, a peace that this world can't rob us of because he's right there with us. He is our peace. Our peace doesn't come from something, having something, orchestrating something. Our peace is rooted in someone. He is the Prince of Peace, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, we come before the Father in this moment, and we say thank you. Thank you for the 
the promises of your word. Thank you for the access that we enjoy. Thank you that we can come in your name. So when we come before the Father, it's as though it's your heart that is being communicated and shared. And Jesus, you said, it's not like God's just doing us a favor because of you, but he loves us because we believe in you. And so we've been placed in the beloved. And it is your delight, Heavenly Father, to answer the cries and to respond to the requests of your children. It doesn't mean you're going to say yes to everything we ask for, Lord. We, we humbly submit to your wisdom and your sovereignty, recognizing that in eternity we'll be just as thankful for those things that you said no to as we will be for the things that you said yes to. Because you know what's best. You're a heavenly Abba. You see all of the different threads and strands that make up the tapestry of our lives. And according to your word, we know that you're weaving them and working them in such a way that it's going to bring us good and you glory. You're telling a beautiful story through us, Lord. And so we just recognize that tonight. And I pray that you would sow into our souls the seed of this joy that can't be taken. Might that joy characterize us, even as it marked the lives of those first century disciples. It didn't mean that they were insulated or protected from having to face hardship, but they carried with them the note of joy in the midst of those hardships because they knew in just a little while longer, I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him for as he is. So Lord, help this to change us, to shape us, to mold us, and to fill us with joy. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.